when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. From Vice Australia, this is Extremes with me, Julian Morgans. This is the show that explores the far ends of human experience. And today, we're going to hear from a guy named Reg Spears. He posted himself from London all the way back to Perth inside a box. Let me tell you, it's a big box and you've got plenty of room in there. You can stretch your legs out or you can curl up and go to sleep. I'm not uncomfortable. I can can lie down with my legs pulled up or I can sit up with my legs stretched out with my back to one end. There will be worse ways to travel, I guess. (laughs) So back in the 60s, Reg Spears was a professional javelin thrower and he travelled to London to try to make the cut for the Olympic Games. But he didn't. So then he was left stranded without enough money to get home. Now, the obvious thing would have been to just save, but uh, Reg decided rather than getting a plane ticket, he'd just send himself via post. And that meant three days inside a wooden crate, traveling from Paris to Bombay, then to Singapore, and then all the way to Perth. And today, Reg is going to tell us about this completely insane journey as well as about his general non-conformist zeal for life. I was a bugger of a kid. My mother told me that. 1941, I was born. So through the 40s and into the 50s, and uh, I left school at uh, 1959, the end of 1959. I I grew up at a time when we didn't have much, and uh, where I lived, I lived on the beach and near a port, so as growing up as a kid, it was all full of adventure. The port was uh, Port Adelaide, and, uh, and then those before containerization, it, it was full of ships from all over the world, and it was a very active place. To grow up there as a kid, it was just fabulous. I had the best childhood. I was tops at sport. I could do anything. I was the best in every sport in the school. Strangely enough, I had talent in athletics, so I didn't know it. Well, I was a, began as a long jumper, and when the school season finished, I went to the local club in Port Adelaide, and I'd never seen a javelin. I picked it up and uh, threw it past the, the club champion straight away, so they signed me up. <laughs> That's when I began. I like javelin because it, it's a, an ancient weapon, and I like the idea of throwing. I was a very good thrower, and it involved the Olympics, and uh, that's I got my mind on that, and that's what I went for. If you're good at sport, it opens doors that normally would never open, and uh, it gave me a different slant on life just by throwing a stick through the air. The Tokyo Olympics in '64. Naturally, I was lined up. I wanted to do it. I wanted to go to the Olympics, 
and of, in the Olympics you're required to meet qualifying marks and I've done that so Reggie here you go to the Olympics my boy it's all been good but I got an injury and of course at the time 1963 I think it was nobody knew anything about sports injuries and I was buggered I couldn't throw anymore the Australian season is out of step. If I'd gone to the UK, they're still competing. And if I could show in England that I could still throw reasonable throws whilst I'm in England, I could be eligible for the Australian team. Not only that, I'm, I'm fit and ready to go. And I still had that time. That's why I went. So I thought I'd go to England and see if I could get fixed up and make the team. But I, I didn't. You've got to remember, I was 22 and I'd never been out of the country and I didn't know anything. <laughs> I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. I was so ignorant it hurt. And of course, to, to make the Olympics now, it time's running out. So I've got to get back home. I've got no money. Well, it was my daughter's birthday and, uh, and that was a bit of a motivation to promote this little escapade. It would have been nice to get home for it. She was only a kid, she would have liked it. You know, I always fly by the bud seat of my pants because there's no other way. I couldn't, you know, what am I going to do? Start walking back to Australia? <laughs> Fortunately for me, <laughs> I happen to have had a job with Air France. The part I was in was the export uh, cargo. And I learned about the specifications of the aeroplanes, what pieces of uh, freight you can put in the hold. I'm working for Air France and I'm watching all various pieces of freight go through, animals going through, gold bullion going through, all sorts of things. Australia, uh, I learned whilst in this job that was one of these countries that you, I mean, in those days you wouldn't send a piece of freight to Cuba. You'd never get paid COD, but you could in Australia. You could send it COD cash on delivery. You, you send, send a piece of freight, when it gets to where it's going, they pay for it. So, I got this bright idea whilst in the office there, and I thought, Jesus, could you do this? Why couldn't you? I went to my, my mate, Johnny McSawley, and said, I'm going to build a, you know, get you to build a box, and I'm going to jump in it and post it off to Australia. He thought I was insane. He knew that I was committed, and then he became committed. He got swept up in it, or a couple of other friends that also had a van that could take the box down to Boac in those days to pass me over into the freight section to be sent off. And that's basically, basically very, very simple. There was nothing involved. Build the box, mark it all up with all the bullshit that has to be on it, take it down to the bloody airport and send the thing off. He was a carpenter at the time. He built the bloody box to mild specifications. It was a crate. It was five feet by two and a half feet by three feet. That was the biggest piece of freight you could get on a jet aircraft in those days. A 707, I think it was. So we built that. In those days, I stood about six foot one, six foot two. I've shrunk since. But uh, no, I was over six foot. Let me tell you, it's a big box, 
and you've got plenty of room in there. You can stretch your legs out or you can curl up and go to sleep. The only catch was you had to have this piece of freight 24 hours before the, the flight. So I, I jumped in the bloody box, put it in the back of the bloody van, down to Boak freight area, wherever it was, unloaded it, and they took me into this huge warehouse and put me up in a pile of freight, yeah. as you do. And I could see out of the bloody box, I could see the big freight area, there's stuff everywhere. And 24 hours later, along they come to get me, get this piece of freight, to put me on the plane, off we go. The box was set up in such a way that you could, there were belts in there, I could put a bag in and secure it. Shirts, you know, the normal stuff, and I had a suit and a pair of shoes, that's because I, I knew that I would, if I wanted to make myself look really presentable in those days, if you wore a suit you could really get away with it. <laughs> I had a big catering sized can of baked beans, so I took those with me and I ate the whole bloody lot cold. I, I, I like baked beans. That's what I pissed into. I ate all the baked beans in the 24 hours while I was waiting for the plane. <laughs> and I had a copy of Men's Esquire magazine, I remember. And the torch went out and I, and I didn't finish reading the, <laughs> the magazine. <laughs> probably That probably promoted the masturbation. Who knows? I don't know. But when you're 22, what are you going to do? Be put on the plane. How do you reckon I'm feeling? Where am I going? This plane's going to Oz. How do you reckon I feel? I'm shit hot. Not afraid, didn't even think about that. All I know is I'm on my way. Here's the beginning. Hallelujah, here we go, brother. We're gonna, I'm doing it. I'm gonna make it. I'm on my way back home. The hops. As I said, the big hops, I, I, I would have fallen asleep at some point on the big hops because that's all there was to do. <laughs> I'm not uncomfortable. I can, I can lie down with my legs pulled up or I can sit up with my legs stretched out with my back to one end. There would be worse ways to travel, I guess. <laughs> I didn't particularly want to take a crap in the box. Uh, the peeing part was... The box was set up where I could get out either end. I figured I'd get out of the bloody thing and piss somewhere in the hole that I would have noticed. But uh, that's how it happened. You know, I, 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 did, I stopped eating for about a week. So I stopped crapping, and you know, I won't go into that any further, but uh, that, didn't, that, <laughs> that didn't come up. So, but I had to pee one time, that's all. On the bloody thing landed in Paris, but it comes up very quickly. It's, it's only an hour's flight. And I've been sitting in this bloody thing for 24 hours, so I want to get out and stretch my legs. So I get out, because I got out and took a piss, pissed in a can, put it on top of the box while I'm doing it, I fly. And as this happens, I get this inclination, the plane is going to land. Oh shit, the plane's gonna land. What do I know? Jump back in the bloody box. Put all the bloody things in place to hold it together. Where's the piss? Oh, God. I didn't know how far they get first stop Paris. Get the fuck out of here. No, it lands. These French guys get on and are they pissed off? They've found this can of piss. 
and all I can hear them, and I don't know, can't speak French, but I know what they were saying about the English. I'm waiting for them to say, grab this son of a bitch, get him out of that box. Nothing happened. The plane took off. I'm on the journey again. I know the next is a big hop. Eight hours, nine hours, and we lob in Bombay. It's hot as buggery. And they've come along and taken me off the plane. And I figure, what the fuck's going on here? I don't know how long I'm going to be there or anything. I'm put on a trolley, pulled out and left out in the sun. So I've taken all, I'm in the nude, in the box, taking all my bloody clothes off, sweating, hanging on, I'm not going to give up. They stood me on one end, and as I said, there was a strap in there to hold me in place, and I had that on, so I was sort of half upside down on, on this bloody box, sweating like a bloody pig. But uh, yeah, they didn't bother me, I was young. Then they come along and they moved me, and they put me into another plane. You know, four or five hours, it takes off and flies to Singapore. When the plane left Singapore, it just come back to me then. There was a feeling of relief, because I knew the next stop's Oz. <laughs> Basically, you're sitting in the bloody dark. And that's it. You're in a bloody box, it's black as pitch, and you're sitting in there. What would you do? You would have done the same thing as I did. You just sat there and got through it. You just reflect on whatever you've done in your life up to that point. I mean, what else is there? You just wait, be patient, wait, see what happens. This eventually will come to an end, one way or another, whether I get caught or I'll make it. So sit and wait. That's all I could do. That's all I did do. So after this long flight, the plane's going down, feel it going down. Lobs in Perth. The hold opens. And this is what I hear. These Aussie blokes open this up. And the one says to another, he says, this dirty big fucker isn't for us, is it? <laughs> I know where I am. I know I've made it. I know I'm in Australia. I'm on a trolley, trolley pull me to some bond shed, put me in there with all other freight. As soon as I wait for a while, everything's quiet. I can get out of the bloody box, so I get out. I'm very thirsty at this point. I get out and the joint's full of beer in this bond shed. So, oh, all right, so I, I don't know, I cracked a drink of beer, took a couple of mouthfuls, threw it up straight away. Then I decided, how the hell am I going to get out of this bond shed? Fortunately for me, uh, I find a little toolkit. <laughs> And there's a mesh wire thing up on the, the mezzanine area of this. And I go up there and cut a hole in this so that the wire hangs down like a flap. I push my a bag out, I jump out and walk away. I mean, I was, I'm, I'm elated, I'm there, I'm, I'm, I've made it, I've done the job. <laughs> I'm, I'm home and hosed. <laughs> I got out in this part of the airport, I didn't know where the hell it was. I put on a suit to make myself look good. 
and I started just walking and I saw the signs and just walked out of the airport. I wasn't even on the ground still. I was floating out of that joint. I'm in Australia. I don't care where I am in Australia. I can get home from here. And that was my thought. And I wandered off. I got out to the edge of the Nullarbor. That was easy hitchhiking. So I stood there for a couple of days. No one would take me on a truck. Went to the Salvation Army. They gave me a bed, something to eat. I won't go into my bowel habits at this point, but that factor did come in. I was brought up as a Catholic. So I went to the local priest and said, look, mate, I'm a my brother's boy. I'm stuck here. I haven't got any money. I'm 22. I look like a golden-haired Adonis. And this priest thought I was an alcoholic. He's going to help me, but he, he doesn't trust me with money. So he bought a ticket for me. I had to be on the station. And he handed me his ticket when I got on the train. And that's how I got home. Bravery never came into it, mate. Necessity is the mother of invention. Mate, it was just, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And I think I can do it. I'm very proud of the fact that I'm an Australian. And we're, we're unique, we really are. And I've always felt that about myself. And I knew, sitting there, I'm an Aussie, I'm going to make, I'm going to do this, it's a piece, this is a piece of shit, I can do this easy. We're just going to pause here for one second, because if you're enjoying this podcast, you should really check out another from Vice Australia. This is called Violent Times, and it's hosted by my friend and colleague, Mahmoud Fazel. Mahmoud has run a really fascinating series of interviews with people who have witnessed and participated in violence. And a lot of them are actually really quite notorious figures in the Australian crime scene. And he talks to them about their relationship with violence. Here's a, here's a quick preview here. To me, it was like a movie. Every two years, you chew them up and spit them out. You'd have this crew, that crew, this group, that group trying to make a name for themselves or barge their way in. Then they'd either shoot themselves out or burn themselves out. They'd go away. A whole new generation would come up. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. So Reg did make it back, and he continued competing in Javelin. And he still lives in Adelaide, which brings us back to this entire point about getting home inside a box. So you, you essentially hitchhike back to Adelaide. I'm really curious, did you make it in time for your daughter's birthday? I can't remember. I can't remember, Julian. When was birthday? I can't remember. Yeah. Probably not. I probably missed it. I'm not sure. <laughs> you you came all of this way to go and see your daughter on her birthday and you can't remember if you made it in time. No, that's bullshit. No, I wanted to get back to Oz. I want to come home. I was homesick. You get this overwhelming yearning to, to, to come back to this place because you know how good it is. 
You are the most patriotic person I think I've spoken to in a long time. Well, we should all be like this. <laughs> no, I think this is the greatest spot on earth. There's nothing better than this. We're the luckiest 25 million people on the planet. So when you got back to Australia, did you tell people how you'd got here? No. How did it all? How did it come out into the open? Athletes are lazy people, and I got back. I was home two weeks, and I was going to tell, write a letter to Johnny or send a telegram in those days that I was okay. Johnny was the but guy who built the box for you. Johnny McSorley, yes, he's the English javelin throw champion, and and when you got back home after I'd been away for months swept up and it all two weeks went by before I knew it and Johnny's sitting over there in London so I'm wondering what happened to him <laughs> so he knew a sports journalist and in those days they had the ticker tape things and Johnny ambled up to him and said look you haven't seen or heard anything about some bloke being found dead in a box somewhere and that's there it was the journalist said what and then that was it it took off. It went mad. It went berserk. But that's how it, how it actually came to the surface. Jeez, oh, who would want to be a celebrity? I'd been out for the day and coming home, it was a Thursday, I remember. The street was full of TV shit and journalists. And my mother was hiding under the bed, I think. It was, it was, it was pretty wild. I'd never seen anything like it before in my life. And... It was, I don't know, you, the novelty of it all, I guess. I don't know, but it was mad, total madness for months. Did you like it? Uh, of, yeah, of course, you know, you, yeah, in a way, but in another way, yeah, I could have lived without it. What do you think it was about the story that, that really got people going? If, if you do something for the first time, it's uh, it has impact. By the hundredth time, it's lost its uh, its its power. This hadn't happened before. Well, I got a telegram from a politician here with money in it. <laughs> uh, it was Clyde Cameron, a Labour politician. He sent a telegram and it said, "A gallant effort by a real Aussie," and here's five quid. <laughs> It was... Uh, <laughs> five and, quid. Five uh, quid's... Uh, five, well, I guess yeah. it was probably more back then. Well, a lot of money then. Um, but uh, and, and that's the way the, the people seem to take it up. You know, it's this crazy guy has done this, but he's pulled it off and he's one of us, so good luck to you. Do you remember anyone giving you a really negative response? Did any, any of your friends say... I should say that. I mean, I'm, the box is one part of my life, but if you throw it together with the rest of it, no one has ever came up to me and said, look, yeah, you're a shithead, you know. No one, not once, not ever. I know it's strange, but people are funny. What about the guy who built the box and then you didn't tell him that you were home? Johnny, no, he said, yeah, that's me. He, he, he knew me. John, Johnny nearly lost his job because he was involved with me in this box business. But Heinz should have been thankful I was eating their fucking beans. Yeah, yeah. You probably got a bit of airtime for the, the Heinz Bean Corporation. <laughs> Do you actually remember any of the headlines at that time? I'd been with uh, my wife at the time. We went to see a movie in the city and we're coming home on the train. But when we came out of the movie theatre, there was a news agency and there's this photograph of an extra, you know, when one of those wire things. And all it is is my fucking head. Uh, 
So we had to get on the train, Adelaide Railway Station, and I remember sitting in the train with everyone looking at me. Now, you know, how do I handle this? I didn't like that. Everyone's looking. Everyone is looking at you. You know, what do you do? Nothing. You just sit there and smile. <laughs> what do, you, do you think it's your legacy? Oh, yeah. Older people now, you know, the box man. That's me. I was the box man. Three years later, I went to America in, the Australian te- in, the, in a British Commonwealth team for a match against America, and we'd lobbed in Hawaii. I got off the plane and all the press were there. Where's the man in the bloody box? It's been in Reader's Digest and all sorts of shit. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it on toilet paper. So in case you haven't noticed, Reg is the kind of guy who lives by the seat of his pants. He says the word bloody more than basically anyone else on the planet, and he keeps trying to drive the conversation into pretty uncomfortable territory. But that's, that's all part of his strange charm. He's just a person who'll try anything once, or realistically, lots of times. Were you tempted to do it again once you got back? Were you kind of like, oh, I could go to Look, Tahiti? Look, if I could travel, or... it wasn't that uncomfortable. It wasn't exactly business class. But you could outfit the box a little more comfortably, and, and if that, it doesn't cost you anything. Shit, I'd do it all the time. Would you recommend that someone else give it a shot? Depends what's driving you, huh? If your life depended on it, get in the bloody thing and stop buggerising around. To do it, it's bloody easy. Just don't be claustrophobic, that's all. <laughs> did, did anyone ever come to you for advice on how to do it? No, no. The, funny, the other funny thing was, after you know, the shit hit the fan, two weeks later I read in the paper, the Russians tried to bloody <laughs> get some guy out of Rome in a box. He was drugged and sitting up in a bloody box and they got caught. And it was only two weeks after that that was a good idea. <laughs> Send this bugger back to Moscow. So you reckon <laughs> you inspired the Russians? I would definitely. They owe me big time, those buggers. So, <laughs> uh, but, they, but they got caught. I didn't get caught. Do you think if you'd been caught, do you think you'd have got in deep shit? No, not really. You know, I was just a stowaway. Um, I would have been... Asked to pay money back for doing what I did, or I didn't think he'd get locked up for it or anything like that. Sure. I mean, sure. the customs came and saw me afterwards. They said, Did you bring it back? This is before the days of drugs. And they said, Did you bring anything back? No. But they came. The immigration came, of course, just to verify it all, so it wasn't all bullshit. And Air India wanted their money. Ah, uh, yes, because you never paid for the shipping. No, that's right. I just keep coming back to why. I mean, like, why would you do this? You know, what, what is it about you that made you do this crazy thing? I told you my background when I grew up, it was always an adventurous childhood. And uh, I guess the, it, it, it always stayed with me. It was what's over the hill, what's around the corner, you know, what can I do next? Who can climb the highest tree or whatever? I don't know. Are you the kind of guy who's attracted to, to shortcuts, to life hacks? I'm a lazy bugger. I really am. I'm very lazy. When you got back and the whole thing was a success, yeah. were you inspired to try other insane things? Not really. Not really. But persona that I'm still there. It's still me. I'm still crazy in my own way. Uh, throw something at me. Let's see what happens. 
you just to me you just seem like the the ultimate non-conformist uh it, it seems like non-conformity has driven a lot of your decision making well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you've got a point you know I, i'd agree yeah, i am i'd call myself that a non-conformist it's uh because jean-paul sartre and bloody his girl, girlfriend you know existentialism yeah you know they claim li- life is uh, boring tedious and mundane yeah unless you do something about it and i can follow that school it's uh Life can be. I see it all around, all around me, all the time. Life can be boring. It's uh, not because of of how things are. It's just people are that way, and they won't step off the straight and narrow. Whereas you, on the other hand, I'll go and have a look. What's there? What's going on? Give me a drug. Let me see what it feels like. You know? Drugs are fascinating. They really are. What what, what is it? Um, what is it about drugs that you like? Or they can make you feel very good. <laughs> I smoke weed to th- I smoke weed to this day. Do you? I smoke weed every day. Yes, tons of it. Did you Did you get higher before you came into this interview? Sure, I bloody uh, I had a smoke before we left home. <laughs> but no, I'll go home and have another smoke. Don't worry about that. What do you think? What do you think I'm going to live for fucking ever? Huh? Now I'm going to pack some of this shit in. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Let's be honest. Well, I'm talking honest. This is these these things interest me. <laughs> it's probably worth mentioning here that Reg spent a lot of the 1980s on the run after he tried importing a whole bunch of marijuana into Adelaide. He was eventually arrested in Sri Lanka again carrying drugs and was sentenced to death. But somehow the Australian authorities managed to negotiate his release and Reg got lucky. He was flown home to serve his 5 years in Adelaide. So Throughout his life, Reg has been a dedicated risk taker. To anyone who's kind of listening to this and, and being like, maybe they they feel like they're being a little timid in their own lives. Do you have any uh, advice on how to just live larger? Uh, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just have a go. But but you could have died, right? Uh, look, I could step out of this joint today and get hit by a truck. Don't deny yourself. You know, if you don't know about it, find out what you can find out about it. If you really want to do it, well. Go and bloody do it. I'm not suggesting serial murders get carried away or anything like that. But they're, they're in your life, you know, don't don't look for a reason not to do it. Look for a reason to do it. Anyhow, you're only li- you're living here for Christ's sake. What else are you going to do? I want my life to be something. I want I want to sit, when in my old age sit back in a rocking chair and think, fuck, did I really do that? Go for it. Don't be afraid. <laughs> uh, if you were to do the whole thing again, how would you do it differently? Wouldn't change a thing. Nothing? No. No, no, it worked. It worked out. You know, I'm sitting here talking to you now. I got this far. I guess what I did was right, in a way, for me anyway. When I reflect on my life, I was born perfectly. Uh, I had, if, I, if I had a million lifetimes again, I'd have the same parents, the same brother. I would change nothing. I, I'm, I'm the result of all the things that happened to me. And at this point in my life, except for I've got two new knees and they took a big hunk of my prostate out, but it still works. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like a 16-year-old with aches and pains. What's the most extreme thing that you've ever done that's not sex? Trying to attach bloody drugs to the side of a boat in an Arkham Cochin Harbour with a massive tide change. That's another story, Julian. Yeah. I'll tell you what, read the bloody book. Tell me about the book. The book, uh, well, that came about because our friends in Spain, John and Julie McSorley, the guy that built the box, you know, we've been friends for a long time, and 
when we visit them, they're not told, you know, they ask about what I've done, and I tell them stories about what I've done. And they got got to a point where they thought, well, we're going to write a book about this shit. I said, okay, off you go. So they did. And uh, uh, I haven't read the bloody thing. Um, I feel like an idiot reading it. What's it called? Out of the Box. <laughs> How unusual. It's a, it's a fitting name. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. All right, Reg. I'm going to leave it there. Huge thanks for coming on the podcast today. It's been amazing. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more episodes of Extremes, just go to vice.com or iTunes. This episode of Extremes was hosted by me, Julian Morgans, produced by Anu Hasbold, edited by Dom Duca, mixed and mastered by Jeff O'Connor, our series producer is Katie Roberts, and our post-production coordinator is Pia Caridi. And a big special thanks to our intern, Harriet Ram. Join me on the next episode of Extremes. We're going to be talking to a guy who was done for bank fraud to the tune of $700 million. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.